Hi folks, my name is Chris Reed, Director of My Prosperity, and welcome to another awesome episode of the Wow Crowd. We're joined today by an entrepreneur who admits these days he prefers to keep a low profile, so we are privileged to have him on the show. Certainly his achievements are anything but low profile. Damien Waller is the founder of iSelect. He started his career in the 90s in investment banking with Goldman Sachs, J.B. Weir. In 1999, he founded iSelect, a company that grew to become a driving force in the comparison of financial services and redefined how online technology could empower consumers to assess or procure a whole range of financial products. Today, Damien continues to use his entrepreneurial skills and experience and has gone on to found a portfolio of successful online and technology-based businesses, which we're going to talk about a little later in the show. Outside of work, Damien loves his tennis and pursues a passion for technology, travel, food and wine, as well as gaming and keeping fit. Damien, welcome to the Wow Crowd. Oh, thanks very much, Chris. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be uh, on air with you today. Um, so I'm looking forward to uh, talking about some of my, my past and history around iSelect and uh, what I'm up to these days. Right. So, yeah. You seemingly sort of took that natural pathway into financial services uh, after uni, focusing on yeah. investment banking. Tell us what it was like with that experience, you know, back in the mid to late 90s. Yeah, for sure. So what happened, um, a, lot of, a lot of people often ask, you know, why didn't you do engineering? Why didn't you do law? Um, and what, what happened uh, was that during back, back work, I, I worked at an engineering firm, or two engineering, actually three engineering firms, and I also worked for a law firm. And I realized those two areas weren't really for me. And I thought, okay, I really want to run my own business, but how am I going to save up the capital? How, much, how, much, how, how can I build up that capital? to ultimately, ultimately start up my own business. And I had some relatives that were in the sort of stockbroking investment banking game, uh, were yeah, pretty successful. Uh, you know, I spoke to them uh, and one of them actually gave me an introduction into uh, JB Weir, which at the time was pretty much, yeah, the top investment banking uh, broking house, uh, which later became Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Uh, I got an intro there, uh, got on their sort of fairly elite grad <coughs> program uh, for a couple of years, uh, then helped set up their high net worth division, uh, which was effectively that this was we're talking 20 years ago. This is this was in the time where there was you know high fees, you know, a lot of uh, biased advice and all that sort of stuff. So we we were one of the first firms in Australia to set up you know discretionary portfolios, um, a, a fee based on the, the the wealth under management, which is now commonplace. It's common commonplace throughout the whole industry. We were we were really cutting edge back then, um, so I, I helped set that up with you know a few other guys at the time, uh, and then really um, you know it, look it was a, it was a good time. I think these firms were going through a lot of transition. You know they, they had very very high cost base. Um, they were struggling with old technology, um, and they were trying to work out you know where they were going in the future. It was a huge huge pace of change at you know for the, for those sort of breaking. Into, Broking businesses at that time, and we've seen that we you know with you know Comset coming in, and um, you know in, in recent times, you know Robin Hood and all these sort of types of firms. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was interesting, interesting it time. Would, it, would have, it would have been exciting times. I mean, the markets obviously back then in the mid to late nineties were, were going crazy pre pre tech rep. But then you, you decided yeah. to leave that. So you know, I'm sure it was a brave move exiting that lucrative financial <laughs> services to go and start your own business. So tell us about yeah. the move to embark on iSelect as a venture. Yeah, yeah, great question. So um, it's a bit of a funny story how I um, came up with uh, iSelect. So 
Um, I'd had health insurance basically my entire life under my parents' policy. I think I, I hit maybe 25 um, and you sort of have to go get your own cover. Um, so I thought, okay, I'll get download all the brochures. I'll, actually, I didn't download because you couldn't actually download bro- <laughs> brochures back then. So I got all the brochures delivered. I had maybe, I don't know, 10 brochures from all different firms. I'm looking at all the tables. You know, I've got pretty advanced math yeah, background with engineering. I'm trying to work it all out. I had no hope in hell of doing it, right? So I thought, you know, if I can't do it, how, how, how is the, you know, every man in the street going to ever compare health insurance? So then um, to force myself to, you know, com- try and find the right cover, I, I decided, look, I'm not going to take out any cover until I know I've picked the right one. As luck would have it, I was rollerblading down um, uh, Beach Road with my um, Doberman, as you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's not exactly the safest thing in the world to be doing. So I was rollerblading down um, Beach Road. Um, long story short, he got loose. I went to grab him, fell over, broke two, broke two uh, bones in this arm and ended up in the Alfred Hospital. Um, and that was a really quite a bad experience. Um, and I just thought to myself, how many other people don't have health insurance because they find it too hard to compare and end up with a really inferior health outcome you know, in their lives? And I just thought with the uh, advent of computers, you know, I could code at the time. There had to be a better way of doing this. There had to be a better way of creating an algorithm, effectively, you know, advisory or, or bot, which is what we're seeing everywhere today. Iceland was like that. It was like a bot. It would help you. You put your information in, it would tell you the best um, product in the market. But it was actually advice. It wasn't like at the time there was these, you know, marketplaces and filters and, you know, like real estate and stuff like that. They were very simple, simple tools. This was actually like an advisory tool. So um, I thought to myself, look, um, we've got to do this. Uh, I sat on it for a couple of years um, and then I thought, look, I want to do this. So I set up a group of guys, uh, about six guys in the group, just to look at different ideas, um, put in a little bit of capital. We met every week. We looked at all these different, maybe maybe 40 ideas. And then we whittled it down and to the health insurance idea, which is what we ran with. Um, and we did a business plan, got a little bit of funding. And then of that group, two people went forward to actually run that, that business. And that was in sort of uh, 1999, early 2000. Yeah, just just on the um, on the advice side, and, and I guess coming back to the iSelect business model, it was one of the first internet-enabled marketplace models in the country, and it really disintermediated many financial service product providers. So, knowing yeah. what you know about the advice industry, and I guess the outlook, you know, certainly post Royal Commission, do you have any thoughts or ideas as to how the advice industry might play out in the future and the role of technology? Yeah, yeah. Look, it's a really good question. Um, iSelect was sort of more of a um, digital advisor than necessarily a marketplace. It was more yeah. of a sort of a digital advisor where we had consultants that used that same um, software program, uh, and then clients used the same software program. As opposed, whereas whereas I see a marketplace more like you know real estate or car sales or yeah, fair point. You know, they're more they're more marketplace. In, that's just in my my view. Um, yeah, look, I think the challenge you've got with advice is it's basically, I think from like a regulator perspective and a media perspective, it's sort of like this all or nothing sort of scenario where it's like, um, unless the advice is pure, completely unbiased, et cetera, that's the only advice that we can have, or you go direct to the manufacturer 
and sort that out yourself. Now, the reality is, um, in the in the meantime, there's a whole spectrum of advice at the moment where you know your friends and family, people do it themselves. There's you know tired agents. There's you know more independent advisors, and it is a real spectrum there. And it's a very difficult uh, balance one that Icelic was was really struggling with because we always wanted to be you know just absolutely completely unbiased, but we could never get all the product manufacturers onto the panel in most cases. In some some cases, you'd get pretty much everyone. Um, and then if you don't have a full panel, you know, you're criticised by regulators, you're criticised by media, but it's still a better outcome than, than consumers just stumbling onto <laughs> the wrong health cover themselves. And I think that's, that's the debate that I think we've seen, you know, recently with, you know, the broking industry, you know, there's a lot of criticism of the mortgage broking industry, they're this, they're that, the, you know, whatever, you know, they don't cover all the uh, products. And some of the, um, some of this tension is coming from product manufacturers themselves wanting to create, you know, um, disrupt the advice industry because that's not in their interest. They don't want to pay advisory fees. They don't want to, um, they don't want to be compared. So it is a it is a really difficult tension, um, and it's one where you know if if you know I was um, if I was sort of in, on the government space, which I <laughs> I never want to be in government, particularly at the moment. Um, but I think it's one where we can draw some parallels from yeah you know, the medical industry. Yeah, you know, we've got Medicare, it's funded from the government. Doctors are you know, 99.9% completely unbiased, you know, you get good advice and there's some very strong laws to make sure that that advice is very strong. And one of the things I, one of the things I think that we should have a debate around as a country is we go, well, if we put a very, very, very t- tiny sliver of a um, surcharge on every financial service product in the market, that would fund a pool of money. Is it, you know, is it 5 billion? Is it 10 billion? Is it, you know, whatever, num- whatever number needed? You call it financial care or FinCare or whatever you want. We could then put those that pool of money, and and we could break that linkage of fees linked to a product, uh, and the fees could be uh, paid from that that pool for, for for advice. And that way, consumers would get uh, advice on any financial product they want, as as big as small, and they know it's unbiased, and they know it's quality, and it would open up a whole whole industry. And I think that's a debate we should look at having as a country, you know, down the track. I think that um, in terms of advisory at the moment, I think what's happening is that there is a strong movement, like as you can see with, um, you know, the financial planners, they're, they're more getting management fees on their portfolio. So, so a lot of that, a lot of those conflict of interest have been minimised, yeah. if you like, but those, those fees are very... Um, can be, I guess it can be seen as quite high um, and there's huge, you know, means and means Australia that are locked out of that market because of the costs involved, all the, all the complexity. And if you think about, if you, can, if you could combine something like financial care or FinCare with, you know, um, advisors and then tech-enabled tech advisors, you could, um, it could make a significant difference, I think, to the wealth of, long-term wealth of Australians and uh, people's well-being from a financial perspective. It's a really interesting comparison with Medicare because, I mean, the big topic of debate at the moment is access to financial advice. And uh, Post-Royal Commission 
you know, fee-for-service has made it less accessible for many Australians. So I think that's an interesting model. So certainly something to contemplate. Look, just, just on a final point, uh, and I, I know we're out of time, but I, I'm also interested in your perspective on advice, advisors from a personal standpoint. Now, I know, I know you like to keep a low profile, but back in 2012, you were ranked in the top 20 youngest millionaires in Australia. Did you have a good advisor through your journey and uh, who, who, you know, helped you as you accumulated personal wealth and what was your experience? Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think when I look at it, you know, I've always had, you know, a good accountant. I've always had good lawyers. Uh, they, they've changed over the years. So, you know, I use different firms over time for different needs. Um, you know, I've had, I did have at the time, you know, I had a good advisor from a sort of capital markets perspective, which, you know, has been very helpful over the years. Um, yeah, I mean, I just tend, it's sort of like, as I need an advisor for whatever purpose, I just, you know, find them, connect with them, you know, we use them, um, have a good personal relationship, uh, you know, so, we're, you know, we're, we're sort of close to pretty much all the broking firms, you know, all the top law firms. Um, yeah, so it's not really, I can't really sort of look back and go, oh, I, I had, you know, Bob and Bob was, in, <laughs> Bob was incredible at this. It was sort of more, um, I've always used advisors and I've always valued their input, I'd say, yeah. It sounds like you had a, a bit of a network of them, but what, what advice, just finally, what advice would you give financial planners or accounts working with high net worths like yourself? Yeah, look, I think it's important to have a good personal relationship, uh, particularly in the era of digitisation. Um, you, know, you know, the reality is in the next 10 years, there's going to be bots that are just going to do everything. Um, so what an advisor really needs to step up and focus on the relationship, you know, meeting that client's goals, you know, transparency around fees, you know, no surprises. Um, and, you know, give the client, you know, confidence that you're helping them make the best decisions for, for their wealth or their objectives. Um, and, I think just, you know, a level of innovation um, as well is really important because, you know, the markets are changing so so rapidly. You know, the investments are changing so rapidly. Interest rates are coming down. This is happening. That's happening. And, and you know, I think from my perspective, you know, I, I want access to the best products. I want access to the best uh, bankers. You know, I want the, you know, and that's and having, um, having that ability to connect you in with, you know, key key advisors. Um, so my accounting group at the moment, um, you yeah, know, they're, they're fantastic. You know, they look after a lot of high net wealth people in Melbourne. Um, you know, they open doors to, you know, certain bankers and certain um, investment products and, you know, vice versa. I'm, I'm, I'm networking with them as well uh, in terms of offering them, um, you know, connections to, you know, certain banks and, and so forth. And that, I think that's what you want as a high net worth is you, you just don't want to be Put down the back into the retail channel. You want to have, you want to feel special. Yeah. You, know, you want wholesale rates. You want the most innovative products. Um, you want high quality reporting, transparency. Uh, you know, simple fee models. You know what I mean? Like uh, recurring, recurring fees. We just set and forget. You don't have to worry about, you know, surprises in the fees. They're, they're all pretty standard. Do you think? Um, things like but based on your experience with advisors over the journey, do you, do you think technology's played a, a more substantial role? in the way that advisors are engaging clients? Have you seen that firsthand? No, I, I think, I've got to say, I mean, we're in 2021. I think it's a pretty, it's an abomination. 
generally speaking. I think the level of technology that's gotten into the advice market is is so ridiculously low. It's not funny. It's mainly, I think, maybe back end stuff, like you know, like sort of, you know, as you know, zero. Um, maybe their back end reporting. Um, yeah, you know, right signature, DocuSign, like you know, big deal. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's so we are so antiquated, so backward around the the advice component where where it's going. Um, and that's that's where advisors, I think, need to get get their skates on because they're going to get left behind or disrupted very quickly in the next five years, yeah. in, in my opinion, um, because it hasn't happened yet. You know, we're, you know, we're talking about that you've got, like, you know, basic PFM apps. Um, you know, where's the AI? I mean, virtually all my businesses have quite significant AI built into them. Yeah. Um, and that's, if I was an advisor right now, I'd be looking at every single AI-based product that I can plug into my practice that can help my clients. Because if I don't do it, my competitors will be doing it right now. Yeah. Well, it's a really good way to finish the session, um, a, a call to action to get involved with technology because <clears throat> I couldn't agree more. But Damien Wall, it's been fantastic to have you join us today on the Rail Crowd and to share your yeah. story, your battle scars, your valuable insights. Thanks for being part of the show and, and all yeah. the best with uh, your many exciting ventures. Oh, thanks very much, Chris. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure being here and um, I hope it's been useful for um, your audience. All right, so it was great to have an opportunity to speak with Damien and track back over his journey as an entrepreneur, how he started iSelect, um, lessons learned, uh, some of the insights into what he's doing these days, what's keeping him busy, um, and to unpack a lot of the great information from the interview, I have some equally interesting people to share their thoughts on what was covered. So firstly, and no stranger amongst the advice industry and in certainly in my prosperity circles is David Simon. Uh, David is Executive Chairman and Principal Advisor at Integral Private Wealth, uh, based up in Sydney. Uh, he is also a multi-award winning financial planner, being ranked in the top 50 and 100 advisors in the country for the past well, three consecutive years, as well as uh, previously top planner with BT and Westpac, uh, before starting his own uh, advice firm back in 2015. Uh, David is also a prolific writer in the media on many subjects around the advice industry. Um, I'm also pleased to have Peter Warren on the panel today. Peter wears many hats. Uh, he's the co-founder of a new digital content technology company called Fenura, uh, as well as head of strategic relationships at Inzumo, one of Australia's leading X-Plan customization services companies. Uh, he's, he's got an impressive corporate background, having spent time with big players such as ANZ and ING, and he's also been at the forefront of technology and advice industry pretty much throughout his whole 20-year uh, career. And last but not least, I'm delighted to have Alan Foster joining us. Alan is the Commercial Director of Careabout, a comparison service for aged care, home care and NDIS service providers, uh, which is in fact one of Damien Waller's portfolio companies. Alan has a long career in healthcare and was in fact General Manager at iSelect working with Damien in those formative years. Um, he also spent eight years as a financial planner in his home country, South Africa, back in the 1990s. So, He's ideally placed to provide some really interesting insights into this topic. So, gentlemen, a very warm welcome to the Wow Crowd. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. I enjoyed listening to Damien's story about how he broke his arm, you know, uh, rollerblading and pitch parade. 
with his yeah. total. And um, like you said, not not a great strategy. Um, but it's interesting. You often hear from entrepreneurs who have this sort of random personal experience leads onto pursuing a business idea. I'm interested in, in you know personal stories about this. And, and uh, I guess Peter, I, I'd be interested in your experience because I mean you've been in tech and. Um, and, and it is sometimes these personal experiences that motivate people to, to move into or at least pursue an opportunity. What, what's been your experience? Yeah, I, I like those stories too, Chris. I, I often ask, I mean, I've, I've had the fortune of meeting thousands of different financial advisors and accountants around the country. And um, I always ask them, how did you get into advice? How did you end up doing this? And I'm yet to meet one that said when they were three year old little boy, this is what they always dreamed of doing. Uh, it's always um, a collection of um, events that, you know, conspired of getting someone into advice. Um, and, I, and I think for a lot of people, they, um, they, really, um, they really fall into, into advice more because of their networks, their community and who they, you know, who they know more than anything else. And, and in fact, many of the most successful advisors and accountants are the ones that find a really great niche that they love to work in and they, they target in on that niche. And I think like all, all jobs and professions, when you're working with um, your community, like-minded people, the law of attraction applies and multiplies and, and then a business grows from there. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought that story was quite fascinating. But what I would say about advisors is quite interesting though, is particularly insurance-focused advisors, many of them did actually get into advice because someone they knew or someone around them was, result, was involved in an insurance claim. I do know quite a few insurance advisors that have um, been around those stories, either personally or quite close to them, and have used that often as that little internal furnace that's driven their passion for insurance and keeps them centred, even when the industry makes things hard for them. Um, so that story wasn't terribly unfamiliar to me. Yeah. I'm interested, Dave, do you have to add there? I mean, like, for example, why did you enter advice? Was it, was you, was it something you're always going to do? Was, it, was there some sort of backstory to that? No, it's a really, really good point. Um, you know, I, I've always wanted to be an advisor, which is, you know, I, I um, left school, went straight into university, studied economics. And I, I, um, my initial role after uni was working in for a, um, a merchant bank. So I was BNP Paribas, um, a French merchant bank. And that was working in treasury. And that was only for a very, very um, short stint. And the reason being is that I wasn't engaging people. You know, I wasn't talking with people. It was all phone-based and, and it was, it was a, basically a process that was really set for you. And it just wasn't dynamic. It wasn't a dynamic role or an environment. It was, it was very plush, um, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that I felt represented me well. I didn't feel like um, that was my role. And then I was looking for, I remember speaking to a recruitment consultant um, and asking questions. And she responded and said, you're, you're, you're describing financial advice. And I didn't even know the industry or industry at that time existed. And I was fortunate to be picked up by Westpac. And this is going back to the year 2000. Um, and yeah, and I never looked back. I've been quite embarrassed about reflecting on and calling myself a financial advisor for many, many of the initial years. You know, I, my sisters are both academics and, you know, I um, did okay at uni. And, you know, but it was something that I wanted to do, even though the, even at those days, there was a stigma attached to the role, being, being all sales-based. Um, but I still went through that because it, it was an industry that really attracted me because I, you know, I, I could apply skills for just the, you know, the everyday person. And um, I felt that was warranted. But David, I know, I know quite a bit of your background and you pursued a, a fee-for-service model. Um, and I think you've been outspoken about 
the commissions, of course, the Royal Commissions has, has kind of challenged a lot of that sort of old school, you know, financial advice models. I mean, uh, and that's something that you pursued for that very reason, right? I mean, that was grounded in a lot of kind of belief about what advice should be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I take it, I don't take anything away. I'm not trying to be righteous about saying, you know, the commission model doesn't work. It's just that I never felt comfortable um, effectively taking remuneration after an event, you know, or, or, you know, just helping somebody complete an application form that determined the remuneration I was getting. It's certainly not like that. I'm, you know, there's a lot more work that goes into things and, and commission certainly has its place. But from our point of view, we wanted to be on a, on a fixed fee basis in a very simple three package offer that um, remunerated us for services that we provided that were agreed upon at the start. And I felt very comfortable with that, about that because I was, I was earning my revenue and earning my fees on an ongoing basis rather than just, you know, taking a clip of a ticket. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's shift gears a little bit and, and, and coming to this topic of, of advice. Um, it was interesting hearing Damien, uh, reading between the lines, I mean, he said he, he couldn't look back and say that he had someone right with him through the journey. And that was both at a professional level with, with iSelect or any of his businesses. Um, although he did talk about accounts and lawyers being very useful, but I got the sense it was much more transactional. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, because we've heard from a couple of people on this you know, this show, uh, Gary Lyon, for example, Paul Walter, who said there was someone all along the journey. As I said, I think Damien's was much more transactional. Do you think people need one trusted advisor or is it, you know, is it, is it valid to get kind of ad hoc advice? What's best? I mean, David, let's go back to you because you're an advisor out yeah. there. What, what's your view on that? And did you pick up on that as well in the interview? Yeah, I did actually. Um, the thing is, so I, I spent most of my time at Westpac's private bank. So you're dealing with the ultra high net worth and, and, um, and high net worth. And, you know, this is the first private bank in Australia and the largest. So you're dealing with well-known people as well as, you know, very successful entrepreneurs and, and business people. And, you know, you, you, you forge a relationship. It, what, what begins as a transaction, like any relationship, when it, at the initial stage, you're really trying to understand each other, learn each other. And then after a couple of years, you think you know one another. But then after 10 years, you really know each other. And then after 15 and, and so on and so forth. So I think that naturally, you know, the, the person that's mo uh, most reliable, most consistent, um, most responsive, and I, I think, you know, one that talks to integrity and is comprehensive in all ways, always, um, you know, I think that typically gravitates. So my opinion is that you need a generalist that would then, you know, um, direct people into specialists. And I think that is where it's going to be in the future. But to answer your question, um, I think that it, by, it naturally gravitates to the person that has the, the most trusted relationship. And it's not something that, that, is, that can be, um, I guess, developed, you know, through, through, um, through modelling or, or technology. It's something that's earned through trust, I think. Yeah. Hey, Alan, um, given your background, I mean, you were there throughout you know, the early days of iSelect and you're also a financial advisor. And I'm curious to know your views on this and certainly what your experience was in, in seeing how advice you know, had been uh, utilised by iSelect in those early days. Well, certainly, um, so I was with iSelect for a couple of years, pre-launch and then you know, a couple of years afterwards. And um, I think as we grew and as our needs changed, um, we used different advisors. Um, and so sort of as we outgrew one advisor, we would look for someone who could take us to the next level. 
And when we got to that level, we looked for someone who could take us to the next level. Um, so it wasn't as though there was one that, um, and look, Damien was very well connected through JB Ware and things like that. And, you know, I had my contacts through the financial services and accident and things. But um, we sort of just tried to understand the requirement and then looked in the market for the correct advice to meet that specific issue, you know. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, but let's switch gears a little bit on the role of technology. Um, <clears throat> you know, that, that last topic um, on technology and advice was interesting. He described it as an abomination. Um, and, you know, he spoke about the fact that advisors really need to get their skates on or risk being disrupted, particularly in the next five years. And obviously, Damien is a, a fan of AI, um, you know, obviously from the isolate days and right through. I mean, Pete, you're highly regarded in the industry, uh, certainly, you know, around technology. What are your views on this? I mean, is it changing? Are advisors getting the message? Do you think it's happening fast enough? Uh, yeah, like the word abomination um, certainly <laughs> spoke to me. Um, I, I think certainly, um, you know, there's an overwhelming level of frustration amongst the advice community that we, we don't necessarily have the depth of technology choices that we would like to have at an affordable price. I think advisors, um, they look at other industries, other sectors, arguably other companies they recommend their clients invest in and they see enormous amounts of innovation. Um, yet the tools they use every day haven't improved that much. Um, there are some hard facts about advice in the sense that um, the financial advice community is still quite a small um, sector relative to other professions. So um, if you compare advisors versus accountants, for example, um, have a lot less advisors, so maybe there hasn't been as much capital put into technology for financial advisors. Um, the key drivers, in my opinion, that are changing, though, uh, there's now a burning platform under advisors to deliver, reduce their cost to serve um, uh, for a variety of reasons as playing out and naturally technology is a solution there. But the big one for me is that um, advisor numbers are shrinking at an incredible rate at the moment and investors' assets are growing. You know, we have effectively close to 15,000 advisors looking after arguably $5.4 trillion in unadvised assets in Australia. We've got to find a solution to either help advisors serve more clients more efficiently or to help um, people who can't afford advice get good quality independent advice using technology. Um, so he's absolutely right. Um, it's the, the investment hasn't been there, but I do get the sense that there's a lot more overseas um, players coming into this market and more capital will go towards hopefully um, longer term thinking for technology for advisors. So I'm optimistic about the next five years. Yeah, that's look, it's really this 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 whole notion of access to advice, I think it's really key. And I'd, I'd like to open this up to a bit of discussion. I actually wrote a blog earlier this year. Um, there was a recent study you guys might have seen from CPA Australia on the value of advice. Um, so it references 2019 GDP data and and what it concludes is that every if every Australian was able to access properly implemented professional advice, you know, we would each be $24,716 better off each year. So that's an annual aggregate contribution of $630 billion. So I, I thought it was interesting listening to Damien coming up with what I thought was a pretty radical solution. I mean, it's similar, similar to the Medicare funding model, right? So, you know, um, you know whereby there's a, you know, there's a, a fee that's, or a surcharge on financial products put into a pool that's accessible to Australians. And if you take that Medicare kind of model and apply it to financial advice, I mean, why wouldn't the government be interested in providing financial advice, you know, just as it does, you know, with good healthcare? And I'm interested, maybe I'll start with you, Alan. I mean, you've been in both healthcare and financial advice industries. 
what are your thoughts on that potential model? So look, I think the the idea is a great idea, but the devil's in the detail. And um, so you really what you're talking about is universal basic advice available to every Australian, um, which as we know, there's a huge percentage of the population who can't afford a financial plan at the moment. Um, so the problem though is if you look at Medicare, it does provide a, a base level of, of cover, but then the devil is starts falling apart in all the detail and you've got gaps and you know the professionals are charging more than the base rates. And so there's a whole plethora of problems around Medicare. And I see the same probably occurring here is if you did something like that, um, let's just say the bottom 25 percentile uh, of the population are not that commercially astute. If they had a little bit of advice and then were sent off to balance their own portfolios and keep rebalancing and picking sectors and segments, and they just don't have that capability, you know. So the Medicare would offer that sort of base thing where, you know, you should be in, in a managed fund or, you know, in a balanced fund or something. But then after that, where do they go next and what happens next, you know? So I think it would be good to give a whole section of, of, of the population some bit of direction, which I, I wish, I hope the super funds would be doing for them. But um, but then after that, I think there's there certainly would need to be other arrangements, you know, and that's where your advisors come in. Yeah. What's your view on that, David? I mean, I know you're, you're focused on the high net worth, so it's probably not something that even if they introduced it, you'd be... You'd be uh, across, but uh, but any 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 thoughts on that particular yeah, concept? Yeah, about ten percent of our business is pro bono work, okay. and that's and that's not obviously with um, you know, with our, our core client base. Yeah. So I've got a lot of experience in that area because I've been right. we've been doing that for many many years. Um, I think that the first thing is is it comes down to education. So what does a financial advisor do? And most people think an advisor is somebody that just offers a, a superannuation fund or makes a recommendation to make a contribution or invest in a um, diversified managed fund. So that may be three or 4% of what an advisor would actually offer on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think education is a really big piece. We can easily understand what a lawyer, what services lawyers provide. I think that's quite easy to identify. In a similar basis, you can identify what an accountant provides in terms of services, but what does a financial advisor provide? And I think because it's an emerging profession, you know, some advisors will, you know, some of us don't even know the extent and, and that may include me in terms of what our offer is, but certainly um, it goes far beyond the placement of, of a investment and um, all the, you know, the um, application of an insurance policy. The second thing I, I think about um, is this is, is education. So I think, uh, sorry, is technology, I beg your pardon, because even though financial advice and even more so now because the big players have, have, have um, rescinded from the, the profession, you still got silos that are that are practicing advice, and there's many, many more than what were before the, the big the behemoths left. But quite funny is that the providers, suppliers of, of technology and fintech, they are also silos. So there's this plethora of offers, and as an advisor, you really struggle to understand, you know, which one fits where and how that sort of works because, you know, there's not one single solution that would be considered best of breed, whether it's you know major whether it's communication storage documentation production, relationship management, all the different facets. And I think that's a, an opportunity for, um, you know, for somebody to sort of, to really look at, at and integrate it. And also to Pete's point, Pete made a really good point about affordability. And I think that's a key thing here as well, that the, the cost to serve is so high, um, but the technology hasn't caught up with, you know, the generation that's around. I firmly believe that my clients' expectations 
on technology is defined by the other goods and services they provide, they purchase, whether it's through Iconic or, you know, they're watching Nine Now. That defines my service expectation. Um, yeah. And I, don't, I cannot identify a provider that can even come close to what is currently, you know, is current generation technology. And that is, that is a concern. I mean, we, you know, and, and I, this is, it will come across quite biased, but, you know, we, I established um, my prosperity on the first day that I set up my business. And the idea before, because of that, and that's 2015, the reason I did that is I wanted my clients to have the same experience they did when they were at Westpac, where they could access all their details in one platform. I wanted to make sure that the service offer we provided was not lesser than what they really, than what they experienced. But I guess, you know, moving to the next frontier, it's it's about the the engagement and the interface. That that is something that um, is still quite aspirational for the for the profession, in my opinion. Yeah, look, I mean, let, let's just sort of jump back into technology. I'm, I'm curious. I, I want to throw a bit of a curly one out there. Um, you know, technology over the years, when you look at its impact on an industry, has tended to do some quite interesting things. You look at realestate.com for real estate agents, car sales for, um, you know, the, um, the car industry and dealerships. Uh, obviously, you know, I select uh, around health insurance uh, and insurance more broadly. I wonder, you know, as you start to think about the advice industry, you know, you know, 20 years, what I selected in health insurance, quite disruptive. Um, and empowering consumers and all the other things that went with it. Do you think that there's a, a case for an AI-enabled type of, you know, technology play within advice? You know, you've, we've obviously seen the likes of advisor ratings uh, try to make a play there just into not so much comparison, but, you know, I, I guess being able to, to empower consumers around uh, assessing advisors. What are your thoughts on that? Maybe... Peter, um, be interested in your views as to whether technology could be a really disruptive force in terms of uh, the advice industry. Yeah, um, it's a great question, a curly one. I, I, I think the simple answer is yes, AI could play an enormous role in either improving consumer education and giving consumers the right nudges they need to make some decisions along the way or help advisors uh, be prompted to do things for their clients, you know, in a combination of the two. Um, one of the challenges with technology is so much of the investment and balance sheets is often sat with the product manufacturers um, or the banks, and, and a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the model has been around using customer data as a moat around a business model instead of actually using it to enable um, innovation. So what this industry really needs to do is understand is that a customer, an end investor, they own their data. An advisor is a custodian of that data on their behalf. And we have a free exchange of data between those providers to facilitate AI. Until we get that, I think AI will be a challenge. And I think that's something for the industry to really grapple with sooner rather than later. Yeah. David, um, Alan, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with Pete's comments um, around the moat that circumvents. And, and I think that's, a, you know, the, I, I think that is very short-sighted for a lot of these offers. I think, um, you know, if they did put it, if they enabled the client, um, then... They would have the clients would have a much better experience, but they'd they'd also be engaging that a lot more than what they what they do because it's very much centered around the um you know the 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 establishment the creator. I also think that when you think about the technology piece, um, and you think about AI, and then there's it's absolutely got a place for you know for the majority of Australians in my in my belief. You know when we're talking about we're talking to clients that don't have trust arrangements or you know corporations or private companies or self managed funds. And the majority of people, you know, they have a, quite a simple arrangement where they don't require any further entities. 
AI can serve that very, very well, in my opinion. Um, so fintech can really solve that problem a lot. And I think that's where the biggest problem lies. That also will take a lot of burden away from the, the other advice firms because we all carry, you know, um, clients of that nature as well. And you, you can't overcharge them. It's not, it doesn't make sense. So in order to be productive and effective for them, advisors themselves also need to provide a solution to, um, you know, to those, that segment of their client base. Because, you know, there's a rhetoric around advice to say, you know, continue to have A clients or B clients and then move your C clients on. That's not, that's not the way business or, or the way we should be dealing with, you know, in, in humanity in, in, in total. I mean, we should be looking after people that have vested their trust in us. And AI is, is definitely an option to provide solutions to those areas. Yeah. I think if, um, if I can speak on behalf of my prosperity, I think we've always had the view that, that the technology, the AI, um, is an enabler and that um, it, it actually amplifies the value of an advisor. And I think more and more you'll see the combination of the two actually providing a much better solution overall for, uh, for clients. I'm going to finish on one topic which Damien covered off, which I thought was, was really interesting. Um, he, um, he spoke about the real value for him and advice came from mentors. And we're not here talking about the traditional advisors. You know, again, I, I got the impression that, you know, accounts, lawyers, that's all fine. It was transactional. But where he really got value was people had war, you know, war wounds, I think he referred to it. Um, and he, he spoke about finding people that, you know, he could trust that were open and honest, could give really, really good counsel. Um, David, I guess as a leading advisor, I'll start with you. I mean, how do you position yourself as a mentor beyond just the transactional relationship with a client to, you know, to really, um, to be that trusted advisor? Yeah. I think, I think um, you know, you don't want to be the, 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 um, the king of all things. You? That you've got to specialise. You've got to be a niche in what you understand and what you do. But equally, you can't be ignorant to the other facets of our clients' financial lives. And I think that, you know, by through communication, you can you can add a lot of value. So we we communicate with our clients on a weekly basis. So we have ninety four touch points a year, and we make we make sure that they are all value adding. So we're not just communicating with clients for the sake of it. Now, fifty two of those communication points are through technology. So where we um we'll send a communication out, and it'll be really high level. We'll talk about the market, but largely we'll talk about other areas where clients need to consider whether it's estate planning or whether it's um you know the new laws that are coming in. Around, uh, around retirement products after the, um, after the retirement um, income review and really making sure our clients are, you know, are top of mind. Um, we also talk, talk to you know, areas where we encourage them to speak to their accountant about certain matters and they'll call us first. And they'll say, I saw that email. It mentioned this particular um, this part what I think is relevant to us. Can you tell me more about how it affects us and, and how I should be communicating this with clients? And I think once you start having that relationship, they start engaging with you you know, with everything, with all their decisions um, as the sort of starting point. And then you then guide them back to the accountant or to their lawyer or to whatever, another specialist that is specific to those questions, even though they may not feel, um, sit under the remit of an AFSL. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that you, you've been someone who's embraced technology, uh, you know, right through the journey. So yeah. was it 54 of those 90-odd, touch points being technology enabled. So that, that's a great example of where technology, you know, amplifies what you can do. Right? Oh, look, um, without question, you know, our, the engagement rate is really high. We have um, independent NPS scores measures. Um, and often the client, the major reason is, is that, I mean, beyond 
responding straight away and, and, you know, doing what you say. The third one is always about our communication levels are always consistent. They're always um, informative and they're always, they're always reliable. Yeah. And that's through technology. Pete, I'm sure you've got a, a view on this. Yeah. Look, I think ultimately, um, and this is the hard thing that technology can't always do, is that um, I think clients come to advisors because they are prepared to tell them the things they need to hear instead of what they want to hear. Um, I think the great advisors are the ones that do that and a lot do it that well. It's a hard job telling particularly um, couples sometimes they can't afford to buy this house, they can't afford to do things and, and, and a computer can't do that. A computer just says no, but an advisor says how. Yeah. No for now, but how. And, and I think, um, and really all we need, I think, with technology is just to take away a lot of that um, noise out of the day-to-day advisors' lives so they can spend more time telling giving their clients that kind of coaching that they need. And I think that's what advisors get into advising for. It's what David said earlier. Um, so I believe the tech that unlocks that for advisors will um, help this industry grow enormously. And, and Alan, any parting views from you? Because you you know, you were an advisor for eight years. So that trusted that trusted relationship, uh, that, that predated a lot of the online tech we're dealing with. So uh, interested in your comments. Yeah, so the problem is as, as an advisor, it's really difficult to scale. You can only really physically look after X number of customers or clients in a year. Um, so what about the sort of 60 or 70% of the population who can't afford an advisor? And that's where I think the technology can really play a big part. Is And from the education, as David said earlier, from the education upwards, if there was technology available to that big swath of population that can't afford an advisor, that would help improve their returns, lower their costs, which overall would help the whole economy. Um, and then, of course, there's those who have got advisors and who, who can afford advisors and need advisors. And so I think you would then be taking care of the whole market. But I think that the technology can do a, a lot of work with that big bottom section of the market that's, that's not served by advisors. That's great. Well, guys, I think that, that brings us to the end. We've, we've covered a lot of ground, disruption, advice, trusted advisors, all sorts of things uh, around technology as well. Uh, so I want to thank our panellists today, David Simon, uh, Integral Private Wealth, Peter Warren, Vera Zumo, and Alan Foster uh, from Careabout. Guys, thanks so much for sharing your insights today. It's been really valuable and, and interesting um, given, you know, the, the uh, breadth and depth of experience that you all uh, bring to this. So thanks again, and uh, thank you for joining the WOW crowd. Thanks, Chris. See you, Joe. Thanks very much, Chris. Yeah. Thanks. thanks. Thanks, David. Thanks, Peter. See you, Alan. See you, Peter. Yeah.